What door did Rick close? Because aren't you in your dining room? Yeah, we have doors in our dining room. This is a 115-year-old house. Brag. <laughs> so there are actually rooms with doors. Looks a little bit like the house in the movie. <laughs> I know, I that was thinking a, that. That house is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was like getting... That was my main takeaway from Hereditary was interior decorating ideas for, for my house. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I got to get that wall. I got to paint my walls that color. I was going to ask you, Rick, if you had been up in your attic since you watched the movie too, because it, <laughs> it definitely was, looked familiar. It definitely. And it's small. Yeah. Your attic is, your attic is bigger. Yeah. But it looks, looked almost exactly the same. There's no headless relatives in my mm. attic. There was a weird smell in the house today. All right, welcome to Lost and Found or Rewound, where one of our hosts refused to watch the new Netflix Dahmer bio series. One of our hosts is likely not aware of the series because it was not produced by the BBC. <laughs> and one of our hosts was delighted to discover that the third Human Centipede film, Final Sequence, which he hasn't seen yet, was directed by Tom Six, the director who helmed the first two Human Centipede films. I'm Chris Lost. Uh, I'm Found Jim. I'm... Rick Rewound. And your hot mic. Was that how I was supposed to introduce myself? No, that that's seems... not how you introduce a guest. <laughs> <laughs> Feel violated. <laughs> I'd like to welcome the folks who have recently started listening to the show. Once again, our listenership has dramatically increased well after the conclusion of the show. So thank you for joining. It's a pleasure to have you. Here <laughs> on Lost and Bound and Rewound, you'll discover we are nothing if not committed to our special promises, and today we are making good on what I think but am struggling to verify is our final special promise. So today we are doing our Exorcist 3 versus Hereditary episode with special guest Michael McLost, and I've got more to say about the nature of this special itself. But first, let's turn our attention to our guest. See, that's how we're going to... I wrote something there to introduce him there. When you hear it a certain way, special promises feels a little <laughs> weird. That's why they call it writing, Michael. It's, it's, <laughs> it was written that way. Michael, welcome back. See, I have more. Thanks for having here. me. Michael, welcome back. Oh. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again. <laughs> Are you prepped and ready for this very special promise We've made to the Lost and Found and Rewound community. Yeah, let's do this. So we'll start today's episode with our guest-centric segment entitled Starlet Embarrassment. Michael, when you were last here, you shared your tale of Kim Kardashian. Could we get you to share one of my favorite stories of yours, the tale of when you were working out in the WB gym with a particular friend, another embarrassing <laughs> starlet tale? Uh was this embarrassing? <laughs> the 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 WB story? Yeah. <laughs> you don't you don't remember the story? I don't remember what's embarrassing about it. I mean, I there's a lot of stories from the WB gym where uh, I once worked out and where my uh friend Chris Lost once worked out, like the time that um he got yelled at because he never wiped down his benches after <laughs> oh. sweating profusely. And then when a lady complained about it, he went, so what? If you're not sweating, you're not working out right. <laughs> wow. That's a good argument. And that was embarrassing. Is that the embarrassing story That's you're no. Talking? This is when you were working out with a particular friend. I don't remember. It was a long time ago. I'm sorry, Chris. That's all right. 
We'll strike Let's bring that me back second. in. I don't. I don't. I, I wish it's. I just. I, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I just don't remember the story. Michael, welcome back. Thank you for joining us again. <laughs> Thanks for having me, boys. Are you prepped and ready for this very special promise we've made yeah. to the lost and found and rewound community? I am. This was a a special promise that I think was first made on the midsummer episode that I did, but the kernel of the discussion, I think, has existed longer than that between me and Chris Lost, which we can cue that up later, the proposition of the debate between these two movies. But last time I was here, I remember we chatted about movies that we've watched recently, so I've got some movies here too if you want to do that. Let's do that. Let's let's do a few movies you watched recently, and then I do want to say something about the kernel of this episode. Great. So what mo- as a listener, what movies have you guys watched recently? I forgot about this part. <laughs> but as usual, I can't, you know, I don't think I have really watched anything in the past month or so. Did you watch the films for this episode? Yes. Yes, I did. Rick, did you have you watched any films lately? Yeah, I watched White White Noise. Um ah. watched Emily the Criminal. I did too. Banshees of how do you pronounce it? Inishirin. I just watched that last night. What did you think? I, well, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it. I think I liked it. I loved it. It it did break me, but but I loved it. I mean, it is the most Irish movie you're ever going to watch. But everyone is so good in it. It is, yeah. Colin Farrell just continues to be an actor that I underestimate every time, and I should stop betting against him because he is brilliant in everything that he does. And I haven't seen... I would say I've only seen half of his movies. There are a lot of his like good movies that I haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. I watched In Bruges again after that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a long time ago. And he was great yeah. in that. And then, yeah, The Lobster and The Killing of the... <laughs> I need to see those, too. I've oh. never seen those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, I have the exact same feeling about him where it's just like, wow, he's so great. Yeah. I think the problem was when he came on the scene back in the early aughts and he was like getting big movies like Minority Report really fast and he was running around with Britney Spears. I kind of just wrote him off as like, oh, he's just like a a flash in the pan party boy, but he's got the goods and he's so great in Banshees of Inishirin. Like like, all those people are. Brendan Gleeson's amazing. The actress who's from Better Call Saul right. is terrific. And Rome, I wish I remembered her name off the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I really love that movie. I watched it last night. And it is sad. It's, it's funny, but it's also very sad. I am particularly sensitive to, uh, what do they call it, hand trauma. And so it, that's the one thing that was oh boy. difficult for me to... not Spoiler alert. <laughs> There's a little hand trauma in the film. That's all we'll say. <laughs> And it's wild. It's wild. Wild. Wild hand trauma. Wow. I shouldn't have uh, made you watch Sharky's Machine then. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I probably talked about that during Sharky's Machine. Yeah. I watched uh, Avatar The Way of Water no. recently. <laughs> yeah, no. me too. How was that? It was 40 minutes too long. It was a delightful cinematic experience. I do not regret going to see it. I will say it was a good film. I enjoyed it. I probably would never watch it again. Just like the recent Batman movie. It's like, they need to cut these films down. Well, I I disagree about the comparison with the recent Batman movie, but go on. (laughs) 
You don't think there was 40 minutes too much of water action in the Batman film and in the way of water? This is great. I love this because this actually gets to... This is going to cue us up later for the conversation that we're going to have between the two movies for today. I like that because there's one extended water scene in the Batman that's a too long movie, you immediately compare it to the new Avatar film. <laughs> Which had an extended water scene that could have been cut from... The whole movie's a water scene. <laughs> well, I'm talking about the last 40 minutes where they redid the last you know, 40 minutes of The Abyss in the last 40 minutes of he Avatar, did the, the Way of Water. Well, it was not, wasn't The Abyss, it was Titanic. Titanic abyss. I mean, there's always some sinking thing where people are have to keep their head above the water so they can breathe. And I think Avatar is probably too long, but I will say this: the difference between that movie and the Batman is the Batman is a three-hour movie with still confusing plot lines and character beats that don't work, and things where you're like, how is this movie three and a half hours long, and it still feels like there's parts of the movie missing? <laughs> yeah. Whereas true. Avatar The Way of Water, it's all there. There's nothing, there's no beat in the story that you feel like, oh, I didn't get this, I didn't understand why this character did this. In some cases, I would rather have a three-hour movie where everything makes sense than have a two-hour movie where I feel there was 45 minutes cut out of this edit that I think were important, and I would rather be a three-hour experience. Now, if you want to debate whether or not he needed to write a three-hour script, that's fine. Or if movies need to be three hours long, that's fine. But at least it was three hours, and I understood. I feel like so much with these big Hollywood blockbusters recently, like Rise of Skywalker is a perfect example of this. That was a two-hour and 15-minute movie, but I felt like it needed 45 more minutes to explain some of the stuff that was going on. And I would have rather have had a three-hour cut, even if it was a long Star Wars movie, than feel like something was missing from the movie. Also, the Avatar, all that stuff that you felt was too long, that action sequence was awesome. And I felt like it was him taking what he learned in... Terminator, Terminator 2, The Abyss, Titanic, and going, now I'm going to revisit some of these motifs with 2022 technology and what I've learned as a director. And I, I just, I loved it. I mean, I don't necessarily want to sit down and watch it again in a movie theater because of the time, but I thought moment to moment, beat to beat, it was a pretty, pretty great movie. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But I would say this, I think if you cut 45 minutes out of the Batman, you could have made a film that made a lot more sense. It felt like you either needed to add 45 or cut 45. And for God's sakes, let's make a nice, awesome, fun 90-minute Batman film with a kick-ass car and he just beats up some guys and we all go home happy. The, the Avatar film, I disagree with your last point. The last 45 minutes were not the exceptional action sequences. It was all the, let's get back on the boat and save the kids and mom. And they're off the boat, they're on the boat, they're off the boat, now they're back on the boat. It was all unnecessary, dragged out and kind of boring. Whereas, you're right, everything that led up to it was fantastic. And then we just got sort of dragged down by this denouement that was too long and this weird extra piece of action at the end of the film that didn't make sense because... 
all the warriors from the water people. Well, spoiler alert, everybody who hasn't seen Avatar Way Water. All the warriors from the water people disappeared. Not sure where they went off to. And then suddenly he can't hold his breath for as long as he used to be able to hold his breath. <laughs> I, I just I, I couldn't make any sense of it. Oh, man. Uh, well, we fundamentally disagree about that one, but that's do, fine. Do you remember this story? So one, one story, Michael, Chris story that hopefully Michael remembers. Here we go. <laughs> Do you remember when you and I were having some dumb argument? I think it was like, I can't remember. It might have been. I do remember this story. Who's more famous, Kim Kardashian or William S. Burroughs? And I think some Australian woman came up to us and like interrupted us and said, this is the dumbest argument I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, I was right. Kim Kardashian is more famous. The... uh, and I'm right about Avatar too. But uh, the thing that I think with Batman is the problem with that movie, and we'll move on, is that was clearly a studio that was trying to set up multiple narratives that were going to spin off into multiple HBO Max spinoffs. Colin Farrell's Penguin Show, Commissioner Gordon was going to have his own HBO Max Gotham Police Department show. You could feel them wedging in all of these extra storylines that were going to go spin off into. Like, I felt like the Batman was existed, was created to exist as a Batman universe hub in mm. the HBO Max app. And that kind of stuff drives me crazy. I'd rather have a 65 year old director trying to make some big, weird myth- mythological movie that's maybe. 45 minutes too long, but makes sense, and it's all part of his weird vision. That I'm on board for more than something like the Batman, which just feels like a little bit cynically put together. No, I agree with that, but I'd still want them both to be better. Fair enough. Rick, have you seen the Avatar movie? No. (laughs) (laughs) Any other questions for me about that? Will you be seeing the, the Avatar movie? No. Is the same reason you refuse to see the Avatar movie the reason you refuse to watch the Dahmer series? No, no, no. Different reasons. I left the James Cameron boat with Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah, I, I thankfully got off the raft then. I mean, he's only made two movies since then. Right, so exactly. it's not that hard to resist, I suppose. And, right, and right. Spoiler alert, Kate Winslet is back. With uh, Cameron in the water. And she swore that she would never get in the water with him again. <laughs> with him again. That's my story. Rose Rewound and myself went to the theater to see Titanic after it had come out. Empty theater. There's someone named Rose in Titanic. That's true. But we sat down. Are you talking about Titanic? There were two. <laughs> Are you talking about Titanic? Yeah. I have an antidote about when I saw Titanic. No, we're not talking about Titanic. <laughs> with Michael and Chris. I mm. sat between them, and at the very end, I looked to the left, and I looked to the right, and both were sobbing, and I was oh. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. So, I, anyway. Well, Rick's antidote ends with him laughing at everybody who died off on the ship. No. It I is. That is what happened. Sobbing. <laughs> tears streaming down the face. Look, if you walked into Oprah's show right now, <laughs> she'd have your ass thrown straight out. You what? walked into... Forced one time. I didn't do this much. I thought that was a good anecdote. What would you like? Uh, now I don't remember why I came. Oh, out. of course not. <laughs> so Michael and I cried during Titanic. You and Rose did not. No, no, yeah, there were two two young women. And I did not. S- yeah, sitting in front of us, 
we were talking to them and they were like, oh yeah, we've seen it 10 times, right? This is the, the time, you know, back in the old days where you had to go to the theater to watch it, right? They were like, oh, it's the most amazing movie in the world. And they were just so excited. And then we sat and we're watching the movie. We got overwhelmed with the giggles as the, the bodies flew down. The digital animated bodies fell down the ship and were bouncing off of things. We had a laughing fit. <laughs> And then I think we offended the young women who were the only other people in the theater. So yes, yeah, no, I, I know that's, that makes me a bad person. That makes you a sociopath. <laughs> a sociopath. I don't know if you want to say they're bad people. <laughs> to tie it all together was sort of the point of Dahmer. Is he a sociopath? Is he a bad person? <laughs> really? Is that, yeah, so there's no reason to watch it if that's really what they're, they're working out in that uh, series. Now I feel even better for not watching it. No, they're not working that out. They're, they're, I, I think, Dahmer, I think that the, the reason why I liked it was, A, it gave a voice to many of the victims that I didn't know much about. Hmm. That's tr tremendously sad. And I think I understand why the victims' families did not want more Dahmer content. I mean, there's, there's a ton out there. In fact, the series was kind of an amalgamation of the five or six things that I've already seen brought together in a more well-done fashion. But I think the other argument was, what do you do with a human being who's inherently broken? What do you got up there? What are you showing us? This was a, a Wisconsin music festival we played at, and I, I walked up to the guy selling posters, and I said, why is William Shatner on the poster for this Milwaukee music festival? And he said to me, Rick, that's Jeffrey Dahmer. It's a picture of Jeffrey Dahmer with a bunch of cuts of meat around him and then all the band names underneath. It's a really bad drawing of Jeffrey Dahmer. So you were, you were in the right to ask that question. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I didn't watch the Dahmer, Dahmer series. No, and I'm no, sure I'm... Jim would have watched it if I hadn't have said something. Right, Jim? <laughs> you were all for it. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't excited about the prospect of that, I guess. I don't know. I probably would have, though. <laughs> But Michael, did you finish it? I know you stopped after the first episode. Uh, I haven't gone back to it. I, I maybe maybe will, maybe won't. It just super depressed me, and I was like, I don't need to watch this. Yeah, it's a hard watch. All right, well, let's, let me get us back on track. Let's talk about the nature of the show here today. So yeah, I mentioned that I had one more thing to say about the nature of the special, and so I'll do oh, wait, that now. Can I ask one quick question? I'm so sorry. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Jim. I believe you mentioned on a recent episode. I think it was you, Jim. Might have been Rick. Uh, you brought up the Fletch movies. One of you guys did. Was that you, Jim? Uh, maybe it was Rick. <laughs> we were talking about uh, Michael Ritchie, it, right? Right, Michael Ritchie, because we watched a Michael Ritchie movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was oh, yeah. curious if you guys watched. If any of you guys watched the new Fletch movie with John Hamm, Confess Fletch. No, I want to, but I don't think it's on. Like, I have like three million streaming services, but it's on the one that I don't have. It's directed by Greg Matola who did Superbad oh, and yeah. a bunch of other movies. It's really good. I haven't seen the original Chevy Chase Fletch movie since I was a kid. And so I'd like to go back and watch this. I watched this on the plane. It was along with back-to-back -back with Emily the Criminal, which you guys mentioned, which was which was great. Yeah. Um, I loved Confess Fletch. It's a really... It actually reminded me of a Lost, Found, and Rewound movie. It's got a real kind of chill 70s vibe to it, kind of gumshoe... Uh, simple movie, 
well acted, well written, not trying to change the nature of filmmaking in any major way, just trying to make a good, entertaining watch. Chris, I think it comes in at 92 minutes. You would love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, Great. But uh, I guess it's supposed to be more like the books than the Chevy Chase movies were, and it actually made me want to go and read the book series, and I hope they make more. So I, I, I recommend you guys check out Confess Fletch. I think all, all three of you would enjoy it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do it. Did we get to what you watched, Michael? I can't remember. Did you tell us what you well, watched? Well, we, we, we mentioned Avatar and Confess Fletch. It's fine. I have a short, <laughs> and then we met Banshees and, and, and Sharon. I'll, I'll, I'll say real quick, Barbarian, Smile, Bodies, 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 which is a blast. Confess Fletch, Little Women from 2019, which I hadn't seen uh, yet. Watched that on the plane as well, to and from Kansas City. Emily the Criminal, Wakanda Forever, Willow, rewatched Willow to start watching the Disney Plus series, which I haven't done yet. Glass Onion, which was also a blast. Triangle of Sadness, which I highly recommend. It's one of the best movies I've seen this year. It's sort of in the White Lotus vein. It's sort of hospitality, black comedy, satire. It's the, got the upstairs, downstairs kind of stuff. Uh, the rich ruling class, the people who work for them. It's a little bit longer. It comes in at two two hours and 27 minutes, but it has one of the greatest sequences I've seen on film in a long time. I highly recommend that. And then the last movie before Banshees of uh, Inishirin that I watched, uh, my girlfriend and I watched Don't Worry Darling uh, with uh, Florence Pugh and Chris's favorite rock star. Harry Styles. Yeah, Harry Styles. It's not good, but oh, oh. it's not. It's really bad. She's terrific. He's great in it. I would say watch it if you want to be a Florence Pugh or Harry Styles completist. Otherwise, it's it's a new version of movie tropes that we've seen many times before and doesn't do a good job of reinventing them for the current moment. That being said, if um, Olivia Wilde would like to cast me in her next movie, I'd be happy to be a <laughs> yeah, part whoa. of it. Yeah, whoa. Watch what you watch what you're doing yeah. there. All this stuff I, I'm in danger of saying. I mean, there were good <laughs> things about it, but I just think it I if you want to watch a good movie by Olivia Wilde, watch Booksmart. Booksmart is is much It's a great movie. Fantastic. And movie. if you want to watch uh, a terrific movie with Florence Pugh and it watch Fighting with My Family, if you guys haven't seen that mm. either. A movie based on a real story about a family who the two teenage kids, Florence Pugh plays one of them, want to become WWE wrestlers. It's 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 produced by WWE. I think it's actually produced by Dwayne Johnson. It's got Nick Frost in it and the woman who played Cersei, again, blanking on names from Game of Thrones, are the parents. And it is just a delightful, funny family film. It's one of those that I was like, I don't know if I really want to watch this. And I was just... It's a British movie. I was just like, yeah, caught, I did caught see up that. in it. I saw at yeah. least part of that movie. Where did I see it, that? You think of the Black Widow movie, Rick, with Florence <laughs> Pugh, and they Which all I fight together. Seen. They're like fighting. No, no, no. The wrestling, or the, yeah, the pro wrestling movie. I, I, I remember, yeah, I think I watched all of it. it was the, great. The, the daughter, yeah, the sister, yeah, over eclipses yes. the brother, right? Yeah, yeah. I did see that. Wow. I totally forgot about that movie. And I didn't even realize it was Florence Pugh. It's from a while ago, right? Yeah, it's kind of it's 2014, I think. Oh, it, it was hmm. one of the okay. movies that put her on the map. She did it before Midsummer. Those are my recent watches. 
All right, let's let's get back on track. Thank you for your recommendations, Michael. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. I wanted to start our main segment of the show w- with an old segment titled "I Apologize" because I, oh. I uh, and I'll be the one doing the apologizing here. So this is my last scripted moment in, in the show. You all be glad to know. So Michael, Rick, Jim, and especially Ari Aster, I apologize for insisting we do this episode. After a careful rewatch of both films, Exorcist 3 and Hereditary, I could not find much other than some subjectively visceral moments that were similar to these two films. Rick in particular, I'm sorry I made you watch two genre films. I know you find such behavior abhorrent and barely tolerable. Ari, I'm sorry I had such a pretentious and condescending view of your initial feature film. Upon further review, I find it to be an absolute masterpiece with insanely great performances by your entire cast, not just Tony Collette, albeit her performance was off the charts great. My initial criticism of this film was deeply rooted in my own stupidity, ignorance, and reluctance to revisit my own issues with familial and filial dysfunction. I am sincerely sorry for how I originally felt and spoke about hereditary on the other hand, I've always loved Exorcist 3 and hold to this day that it is a kick-ass fucking film. My mind is blown. Apology accepted by all parties. <laughs> also, I cannot wait for three years from now when you write the same letter to James Cameron about Avatar Way of Water. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not writing that about Midsommar, although I guess after I watch the director's cut of Midsommar, I'm going to have to write Yeah, let me apology. know. I... I think it will actually, it's one of the rare director's cuts, unlike the Godfather coda, the death of Michael Corleone, that actually changes you, might change your opinion about the movie. So look, I will apologize to Ari Aster about Midsommar once I watch the extended director's cut, which fixes all the flow issues. I will also apologize to James Cameron when he cuts 45 minutes out of his last (laughs) film. All right, Hereditary. How did you all feel about it? Rick. I'd be interested in... Actually, let's start with Jim. We've been talking a lot. Jim, how did you feel about Hereditary? At first, I was like slightly dreading it. You know, it's kind of the same with Midsummer. You know, I was like, oh, I don't know. But once I got into it, it would. I think, you know, I would uh, like it, <laughs> which I did. I. It took a while to get going, but it's the same as Midsummer. It's like kind of a bit of... What am I trying to say? Rosemary's Baby. It, it's a bit like uh, being... Uh, not abused, but, you know, it's slightly, am I really going to go through this? You know, how, how bad is this going to get? And oh, then, yeah. Which isn't fair because it's heavy drama, you know, and intense. And that's the part that was great. You know, like all the supernatural stuff I kind of enjoy, but it, I enjoy it when it's more tongue in cheek, kind of like Exorcist 3. And it's obviously much more of a humorous movie. But so I was worried this was would be too serious. And, you know, it, it is obviously very serious, but there's not really any humor at all, I don't think. So I was like uh, wondering, oh, just the supernatural stuff gets, uh, I, I don't buy into it at all, really. So it, it's just, it's fun. I, I view it more like in fun movies. And then this is like taking itself too seriously. And it's like all the, the ritual stuff. And it's like, I, it wasn't too bad. But by the end, it got a little, for me, got a little silly. But it was great, though. I'm, I'm glad I watched it. It's the same, yeah, like as same as Midsummer. I'm glad I finally saw it. On my own, I probably wouldn't watch either of these, you know, or I would, Midsummer, I probably would have come around to it at some point, but it's just like reading about it. I'm like, oh, do I really want to watch this? But when 
it's great that you guys make me watch this stuff. So. <laughs> I didn't feel too badly abused by it, but it was like, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, is this worth going through, you know? Yeah, it's about trusting the director, right? Yeah. Do you trust the director? Are they right. doing this because it propels the story, the ideas, and concepts, or are they just not like an yeah an exploitation movie or something? Just yeah, yeah. It definitely delivered, like you said, the the performances and the acting. Her whole performance was the key thing. It's amazing. Well, like uh, I kind of feel sorry. Well, Gabriel Byrne is like oh. like <laughs> I was wondering like if he was just going to go off, you know, by the end of it. Like he he doesn't, you know, he just you know he just Peters he just. <laughs> Dies and I, I just expected him to explode or something, just him to be a, more of a part of it. So well, he did. It's <laughs> <laughs> just this quiet kind of feel, and then he breaks down, has that breakdown, and finally, kind of, you know, is completely losing it. But that was great too. How how understated he was, or it's like you know, I could relate to that character being like that, like me. I could relate to this quiet guy and we're like my dad you know it's like he's like yeah. our father or something is like this mild-mannered guy like if you're involved in this insane situation you know i love that he is trying for the whole movie as the therapist and the husband father to be the voice of reason mm-hmm. and keep everybody grounded during everything that's going on and there's just like really quiet mo- moment rewatching it that really struck me where it's he's Move down to the couch because he's starting to quietly suspect that Tony Collette Anne is lost is losing her mind, and he goes and sleeps on the sleep on the couch and he sits up and he's got medication there. We don't know what it is. It might be a sleeping pill. It might be something you know. It might be antidepressant or anti anxiety. And there's just that moment where he sits and he plops one pill in his mouth and then he looks at the bottle and he plops another pill in there and i was like that's kind of all you need to know about his character in this moment is he is just struggling to remain under control no matter no matter what like he's either got to really sleep through the night so he has enough energy for tomorrow or he needs double dose of his medication <laughs> to not fucking lose it <laughs> Your review is amazing, Jim, because it kind of brought to light why I think I had such a, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I had a bit of a turnaround on this film, the second second viewing. I was not as worried about what the director was going to do to me because I knew what he was going to do. And I think part of what Ari Aster is really good at is amplifying your anxiety about what could potentially happen. By beheading the young, uh, mentally challenged girl in the film, at that point, you're like, well, he could do anything now. That's what really put me in a really bad place the first time I watched it. It's like, I don't think I trust what this guy is doing. I don't think this is very well thought through. Plus, all the all that stuff was true about all the family anxiety and filial relationship stuff really put me in a bad place first time I watched the movie. But this time, I knew what was going to happen, and I sort of said, well, what if I just saw this as a, a horror movie like Exorcist 3? This is just a horror movie. It's about someone being possessed. I know that now because I've seen it once. And and it was a far better film when I took it less seriously. You know, that's what made it actually kind of fun to watch, even though there's some really dark and depressing moments. And I think the one thing I never noticed was how good Gabriel Byrne was in the film, because Tony Collette is really kind of stealing the show. But I was like, wait, every actor in this film is phenomenal. Even the little girl, like every every human being in this film is acting their asses off, is being directed incredibly well. 
just as meticulously as the set is designed and all the art direction is and how beautiful rick you had mentioned styling your house after it i don't know if you read but that is a set that was built so that they could pull the walls apart and take it apart and push the cameras in so that it would cool. be like a miniature so they actually built mm-hmm. instead of using a real house he wanted to be able to manipulate the rooms and, and just like you would pull the front off of a, a, a miniature house and kind of look in he wanted to be able to do that with the cameras and he actually kind of does that in that initial shot when he comes into the boy's bedroom yeah. you know and it really looks like a fake dollhouse except there's a real right. boy laying in there and i'm not sure if that was actually a shot or if they did a mat with a dollhouse and then just had the boy laying in bed it was it was fantastic yeah anyway long story short i think jim put it more eloquently is now that i didn't have to take the film seriously cuz i knew it was just a horror film i found it a lot more fun you know other than some of the very serious, intense moments of of gore. In my post-film discussion I had with Graham Rewound, my son, I felt it was an elevated horror film. Like, we were talking about Rosemary's Baby, which he hasn't seen, and I basically said over and over again, I can't really talk about this movie without talking about Rosemary's Baby and thinking about the way Rosemary's Baby went, at the time, went beyond typical horror or B-movie films and sort of jumped a level. And I felt that was the same thing with this film. I I feel like it was operating on a higher level than just a basic horror film. Kansas City. Food-wise, a city famous for its barbecue. But that's about to change. My name is W. Dave Keith, host of the podcast Taco the Town, and I believe that Kansas City is one of the most underrated, underappreciated, up-and-coming taco towns in the USA. On Taco the Town, we will shine a light on all the amazing tacos Kansas City has to offer. Kansas City is a great taco town filled with a variety of untapped taco stylings and flavors, and on the Taco the Town podcast, we won't stop until we've tasted every taco in the town. No taco table will go unturned. Each episode, we review a new taco joint with a special guest. We share taco taco memories, discuss taco topics, and put tacos to the test. We check the latest stories in taco news, and no taco is off the table on Taco the Town. If you love tacos, like I do, you're going to love Taco the Town. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Google Play. That's Taco the Town. I'm trying to understand why all the women have to lose their heads. Was, was there some reason for that that I, I missed? I can jump in if yes, you want please. me to answer this question. So the beheading is part of the ritual to possess payment. Ari Aster in an interview was asked about it, and he was like, I took a liberty with that. That's not part of any real occult ritual that I researched. I have my reason for it. That's one of the things that he leaves up to the audience to piece together for themselves. He said that he wanted to make a movie where the audience was not omniscient to what was happening. He wanted to put them in... And this is what I really like about this movie. And it's kind of like Rose, very similar to Rosemary's Baby. Initially, I would have compared this movie more to Rosemary's Baby than I would something like Exorcist 3. But 
he wanted to put the audience in the place of the characters who are the victims of this generations-long ritual taking place. And so that when they're surprised that something is happening, the audience is surprised too. If the characters don't have all the information, the audience doesn't have the information either. And he said, but at the same time, there are places where he felt he had to put in a little bit of explanation and exposition so we could at least keep this thing on rails. And at the same time, he wanted the movie to feel that the movie knew that something evil was going on, and this was not going to end well for anybody. He set a tone that the movie, with the music and the way it was cut and edited, that the movie is almost a sad, I'm paraphrasing him, but almost a sad, almost evil narrator that knows which helps the unease of the audience being like, okay, I don't know what's going on, but I'm also being told by this third voice that something really bad is going to happen. And that's what I really responded to watching it, is so many horror movies are put together in a way where, for example, Exorcist 3, it's almost all exposition, right? It's almost like, well, this happened because of this, and this is like... This Gemini killer is back, I think, and now we need to go back, dip back into parts one and two. And that, to, to be fair, I think that happens when you have a third movie that's based on a book, a third book in a series. That's a movie that is trying to tie things together with what's come before, whereas this is a standalone thing. But I loved that experience of going... I feel like I'm one of the victims here. And that's that feeling. I think we're all feeling that anxiety and dread that we got. We're like, I don't know if I trust this guy, this filmmaker, to take care of us in the movie. (laughs) And I like that for some reason. You know, at times when Tarantino is his best, and I may have said this on the Midsummer episode, when Tarantino's his best, I feel the same way with Tarantino, where I'm like, something's going to go off. It's build, build, build. I know this is probably going to explode in some way, and I don't trust him to take care of me in the situation. I don't know if there's a specific answer to the beheading, but I think it's all part of this lineage that all the women in the family had to be beheaded, in, as I would say, as an offer to payment. Charlie, though, was always payment. There's no Charlie. There was no personality that was Charlie. Charlie was always payment from the moment she was born. But she was weird because it's payment in a female body instead of a male body. And the whole point was Grandma missed missed Peter when he was born because Tony Collette kept her away. She tried she had been trying to do it to Tony Collette's brother and he said she keeps trying to replace me with people and so he killed himself. And then when Charlie was born, again a male name named after Tony Collette's character's father. So they're already trying to make Charlie a boy. That's one of the first lines that Charlie said, Grandma wanted me to be a boy. There was no Charlie. It was just payment in the body of an infant girl. And then, because they call Peter Charlie at the end of the movie. Yeah. When he wakes back up, they're like, it's okay, Charlie, you're payment. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I think it, I don't know. I think the decapitation is just part of the sacrifice, one of the sacrifices in this long, long ritual. Well, do you remember the mom's note to her? 
that she yes. reads early on in the film. She says that our sacrifices or our losses or something like that. Will far outweigh the riches we will receive. I thought she was referring to something that happened in the past that Tony Collette was in on. And obviously Tony Collette knew something was afoot, but maybe it was the fact that they had to behead themselves. I think that's literally what it is. It was like, you'll understand once this whole ritual's over with that this was all good intentions. And there's such great moments watching a second time where if the family would have just stopped and taken a moment to look at the clues, they might have figured out earlier on that something was going on. But because it's a dysfunctional family drama, nobody wants to look at it. No one wants to look at the problem. She didn't open the book where that note was. She she was too angry at her mom. So she put the she opened the book then Charlie may have never been beheaded. If they had ever stopped to go, wait a minute, what are these weird words that are being scratched into our walls? They might have said, hey, I think someone is breaking into the house and moving things around and writing shit on the walls. If she had looked at what Charlie was looking at in the opening, towards the opening sequence, when there was one of the cult members doing a fire ritual in down the hill... She may have seen what Charlie was seeing and gone, wait a minute, why are they burning something behind the house? I like that too, that there's this idea of if these characters had just stopped and faced their problems, they might have figured out that they were all under attack. Totally agree. Rick, did you enjoy the film? I kind of picked up the vibe that you're like, well, this is feels like a retelling of Rosemary's Baby, which, you know, my criticism of this film initially was it had borrowed too much from Exorcist 3. Um, <laughs> that that know, I don't see, yeah. I, I, I don't see the Exorcist 3 connection except for the, the woman on the ceiling. Um, and the, and beheading. the beheadings. There's beheading, yeah. yeah. Um, and beheadings. sociopathic behavior. And uh, the guy who's possessed also gets his nose broken and has a bandage over his <laughs> nose after George C. Scott punches him. Yeah, yeah so there are a lot of references. Yeah. The eyes, I noticed that too. The killer in Exorcist 3, they, they're like ingots. He calls them ingots, are driven into the victim's yeah. eyes. Oh, and that's right. There's the picture of Peter, the kid. Yeah. He's, the eyes his are eyes removed. are poked out in the photo. But a lot of this stuff too <laughs> is eyes. they're tropes because they're tropes like levitation and being yeah. able to crawl up walls. That's something that goes back to the Salem witch trials. You know, mm. that I saw goody so-and-so floating in the woods. <laughs> you know, this idea of when you're possessed by a demonic force, you gain the power of flight. That's something that existed before the exorcist. That's just demonology stuff. Well, y- yes, but I would, I don't know. I would, I like to ask Ari Aster if he borrowed, if he'd seen Exorcist 3. Cause that, I'm sure he has. P- particularly with her crawling on the wall. And then there was also the scene where she comes out of the shadows with her arms outstretched like this. And I don't even remember one of the creepiest mm. scenes in Exorcist 3 is yeah. the nurse is out doing her yeah. rounds. She kind of opens this door, and the camera's... I think the camera's even just a still shot of a hallway. Which is a very Ari Aster thing, which is a long, wide shot where the camera is still, and you're watching a horrific thing play out in a long shot. Totally. Right. Yeah, and and in Exorcist 3, the guy comes like with the scissors, I think, to to behead the female nurse. And she does the same thing. She comes from a corner shadow, arms outstretched in almost the same, almost the same musical sting happens at that time. So he mentioned horror as a genre that he grew up with. I think he cites in interviews, especially don't look now and Rosemary's baby as two influences. 
I I haven't seen yet him mention Exorcist three, but I'm sure it's there. I mean, I go, uh, I looked on Reddit, and there's a lot of other people who have been making these comparisons between the two movies, and I think it's just because he's a guy who, like us, grew up with these films, and his approach was he wanted to make a dysfunctional family drama because I guess there's stuff in his family. He said he's very close with his mom and dad and his brother and he has a very good relationship with everybody, but he's without he refuses to get into detail, I'm sure out of respect, but someone in his family or multiple people in his family it seems have dealt with some really hard stuff. I'm going to assume and speculate it's mental mental illness stuff. He knew as a filmmaker he was like the problem is if you're trying to make a movie and you want to make a dysfunctional family drama, you might get funding for it. It might find an audience, but it's probably going to be an alienating experience because most audiences aren't going to necessarily sign up for that. But if you package it in a horror movie, you can make a lot of the same points that you would in a movie like Ordinary People is another movie that he points to. And audiences might get that same stuff, but fed to them through the lens of horror. And so you end up with this cool mashup of Ordinary People and Rosemary's Baby. That's the kind of thing that I love where it doesn't, you know, I think your initial reaction to it, Chris, was that it was an Exorcist 3 ripoff, you know, makes me think, well, there are ripoffs and then there's taking stuff that's worked before remixing it to create something maybe new or to add to that conversation. And I always felt that's what he was doing in this movie, that these things were homages to the genre and, again, are part of demonology stuff and part of poltergeist and haunting stuff, you know? So you're going to get those. There are only so many tropes in those sort of genres, you know? I didn't think it was a ripoff. I just thought it was a bad movie that then was borrowing tropes from other good films to try and make itself an effective horror film, which mm-hmm. I've obviously I changed my opinion on. I think that it was a, a great horror film using the language of horror films throughout the years to tell a horror story. And I, I do think, yes, he's wrapping in the elements of family dysfunction. I would say like sort of a Protestant, a typical Protestant, nobody talks about the problems, but the problems are clearly there kind of approach to the film. And like you say, Michael, that handicaps the whole family because they, they're so quiet about everything or Gabriel Byrne is sort of seething through this thing, trying to stomach it out to the detriment of the situation because by, by the time they do figure it out, it's too late or maybe they No one's comparing notes until Tony Collette seems absolutely out of her mind. <laughs> well, and everybody's, they all die as soon as they figure something out. Like that's the mm-hmm. moment they're all dead. The film Relic... That's the one that I think is just clearly a metaphor for Alzheimer's. Remember, and that's where I was like, oh, this isn't a horror film. This is a metaphor. Whereas I think that Hereditary is a horror film. It's not a metaphor. And I think they're both. You know. I mean, I think horror is often a metaphor. You know, we I kind of figured that out watching movies with you, Chris, early in our adulthood. Dawn of the Dead being the clearest example of sure. the original of oh, this is a commentary on mass consumerism. This is what we all become, you know, if we all become mass consumers, we're just zombies. Or uh, body snatchers being, you know, a commentary and a metaphor for, you know, the fear of communism, of being taken over by a foreign thought structure. Like Night of the Living Dead and um, Get Out, is that what it was called? Both have sort of the same message to them as well. You know, it's their metaphor for the way people are treated in society and 
actually one of the reasons we probably don't have time to get into it, but I liked, I really liked Nope. I heard mm-hmm. a lot of bad reviews of Nope. I don't know if you guys have seen Nope. I loved it. I thought it was yeah, really well Yeah, I liked well done. it. Rick, your Nope review? I thought it was okay. It was a good mashup of Close Encounters and Jaws. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jaws, Jaws with the UFO. The college dorm discussion about Hereditary after the film that I had last night, it was, it's all, to me, it was a metaphor for intergenerational trauma. And also, when she says, I understand now, it's my fault, when Tony Collette says that, where it's that idea of, it's, it's exploring that idea of, how long do you blame your parents <laughs> for all the, the messed up stuff that's happening to you and that you impart on your children, right? And then at some point, there has to be a line where it's like, I can't use my parents as an excuse for traumatizing my children. Where we got at the end in the discussion was is that at the end, intergenerational trauma isn't even that. It's all about a culture or a society, right? That trauma, it's not that your grandparents were terrible people and that's why it's it's that the the society or the the culture, the rituals are what caused that trauma. And that it's a sickness that's passed down and yeah. shape shifts cuz that moment that you talk about Rick is one of the best moments of the movie I think and it's also one that I had when I talked about this movie with friends they'd be like, "Okay, but what are the rules? How come when she tries to burn it, she catches on fire, but then when she burns it again, he catches on fire?" So in the supernatural world, putting on my other podcast hat here there's a thing called the cosmic trickster and the cosmic trickster is the outside force in this case would be the demon payment or the ritual that's happening where as soon as someone goes i figured out how this works cosmic trickster will say ah, ah, ah i don't play by those fucking rules So the moment she goes, I know what it is, it's me, and the only way to stop it is if I do this, because I've seen evidence of it before, she tries the experiment again, and the cosmic trickster goes, fuck you, I'm going to burn your husband instead. (laughs) You have no control over this thing that is shape-shifting all around you and does not play by the rules that you think you're learning as you go along. I think I remember something either in text about payment or someone talking about payment that he can't be trusted or there, there's some, I didn't question that. I bought it. What happened there? The switch. Well, I had that question and I wanted to know why I'd be upset if it's just that it's the trickster playing a trick. I want to know why once she takes the blame that the fire transfers to her husband. I think that the fire ritual that we see out in the, that Charlie sees taking place down the hill is some sort of curse, fire curse, binding them, making sure some sort of protective spell for the cult and for payment. But I think there's probably an ability for payment to move around or another demon, perhaps it's the fire aspect to defend itself in different ways. As long as it's bound to one of the family members, I think it's fine. But I do think it is a manipulation of the demon saying, as soon as you think you've got me figured out, you don't know anything because I'm the one calling the shots here. You're not. And I think that that's what it was doing in that moment. Yeah, that reminded me of all the Sinister and all those other movies that you and I have watched, Michael, where it's the demon can't be trusted, you know, that they're always have the upper hand. But by the way, in the, on the point of systemic or societal trauma, I've recently watched the Casey Anthony documentary on Netflix. And I know I mentioned before the Lorena Bobbitt documentary that I watched, I think a couple of years ago, I highly recommend watching those two documentaries. They do the same thing in the Casey Anthony thing. The first episode of the documentary presents 
the case to you as the media presented to us then. And you are clearly do not trust these women and know that they were clearly in the wrong and everything they've done. And then when you get to the end of the series, it is so obvious that they had done nothing wrong and were actually victims themselves. And that's what led to these events. And in some cases, things they didn't do or whatever. Anyway, I would, I would suggest, I just want to make a quick suggestion to watch those two documentaries, because I think they say a lot about how willing we are, how willing we were to let the media and society in general just pile on to these people who were either victim or who were both victims and very innocent in their particular situations. And women. And women, yeah. And it just how, you know, Michael was saying those things about how it's not just generational trauma, it's a part of our society. That two incredible examples of how these people were personally abused by individuals and then they were systemically abused by society. And actually, one of the uh, Central Park Five are going to be visiting campus here next week, and they're showing the the documentary about Whoa. the Central Park Five too. Yeah, that that whole thing—not just being women, but also being African American, right? <laughs> It was just like, oh, these narratives just fly and no one questions. Let's start making the transition into Exorcist (laughs) 3. I think we talked about the things that were the similar between the two films. You know, the reason why I keep needling Rick about Dahmer is um, I saw in in Dahmer that Dahmer would watch Exorcist 3 almost on a daily basis and watched it with some of his victims. That's actually in the first you probably saw that in the first episode. Yeah, which is Michael. wild because the Gemini killer is based on the Zodiac killer. So clearly he was, I mean, I don't know, I'm speculating, but, you know, like relating to the Gemini, the Zodiac through through the Gemini killer in uh, Exorcist 3. Yeah, just sort of a bizarre detail and also another head scratcher around the whole Dahmer story because I think it's very hard to kind of pigeonhole what he i don't think he was as clear cut of a, a sociopath or a serial killer as these movies villains are or even some of the other serial killers in time bundy or or gacy or any of them chris what you're you're saying is jeffrey dahmer like you always say is he was misunderstood like you often say about the serial killers that you watch movies and documentaries about i absolutely think serial killers are misunderstood that doesn't mean that i'm saying that they're good people <laughs> i just want to be real clear about that Exorcist 3. Sorry, I took us on a too, too far of a tangent. Well, but also, uh, when I was up, I'm not sure if anyone mentioned it, you know, the Zodiac Killer mentioned the Exorcist in his letters to the newspapers in San Francisco well, and yeah. said it was like a comedy, the funniest movie, funniest satire he'd seen in a long time. So there is a direct link between Zodiac to, I would say, Dahmer through the entire Exorcist franchise. Because some people think that William Peter, what is it, Blatley? Blatty. Blatty. Blatty, that he put the Gemini killer in Exorcist 3 as sort of a callback to the Zodiac's infatuation with the first movie. Ah, interesting. You know, since you had stopped, you had to walk away, Michael, because of dog barking, I did want to get a note from the previous film before we get completely into Exorcist 3. Did you notice that during the intense family arguments i think around the glass moving where they're all sort of doing the ouija thing with the glass the dog is constantly barking in the background so with the second act of the film the dog is always barking in the background and i thought it was my dogs until i like paused the film and Mm. saw that it was Hmm. it was their dog because it was like so annoying 
And I had to, I was like, well, that has to be atmospheric in the house here in my own house. And it was actually in the film. And then when he flies out the window at the end and lands in the garden, and in the third act, the dog is not barking, it's dead. Yeah, I know. I saw that. I didn't catch it barking during the seance part, but I know watching it again this time, I was like, oh, I forgot they had a dog. I feel so yeah. sorry for this dog. And yeah. this is uh, coming off of the Banshees of Inishirin. <laughs> I was emotionally prepared for... For uh, that dog to be dead at the end of this movie, that's all I'll say. <laughs> I felt really bad. Is so when the dog shows up in the doorway, late, like towards the end of the movie, yeah, I was the like door slams on him and he yelps. Yeah. I I was like, they have a dog. Yeah, same same with me. I didn't I realize didn't even know they had a dog. He's in the very first shot when he comes into the bedroom with the kid. The dog yep. comes right. in with the father, and then when they come yeah. home from grandma's funeral, he greets them and right. they pet him, and it's I was just like. Fuck, poor, like, that's the other thing is like all these pets that have to deal with this intergenerational trauma, you know it's what I mean? It's one thing with, for a human, you imagine, yeah, a poor little dog trying to understand what's going it's on. It's like when you see someone, you're like, that person is clearly an asshole and they have a pet and you're like, I feel really bad for that dog. They don't know how much of an asshole their owner is. Would this whole movie, you know, like, why, why didn't they have an EpiPen? They do. They do. They mention it. They forget it. They mention it. She says at the funeral, she goes, that doesn't have uh, nuts in it, right? Because I didn't, we didn't bring the EpiPen. Yeah. It's like, why, you know, your, your daughter's deathly allergic and they're, they're always constantly leaving the EpiPen. You know, it's like, goes to this party without, when they have it in the uh, glove compartment of the car, you know. We forgot ours all the time. As our, our child would have died had she, she had a sandwich that was cut with a knife that had previously oh. cut a cheese sandwich and she, we had to take her to the emergency room because we didn't have an EpiPen on us. So it happens, forgetting the EpiPen happens. Okay. Yeah, Rose Rewound absolutely, absolutely hated Tony Collette's character. It was just like, this is a bad mother. There's nothing <laughs> about this woman. that She's just a bad, selfish, self-centered artist. <laughs> that's that's hard, harsh criticism. Yeah. All right, one last segment. We'll call this innocuous hot seat, so you can trust this one. Peter's keyboard. It looks like a full-size 88-key keyboard with a large K and a large T on it. Gentlemen, to the to the brothers, anybody know what keyboard that was? Mm, was it something like Kurzweil? Oh, yeah, Kurzweil makes sense, right? Yeah, that has a K and a T. I didn't notice. Yeah, I didn't really see a name. I, I, I did notice it in a couple shots, but I didn't. That's almost as extreme as uh, Ferris Bueller having a emulator two sampler in his house, in yeah. his bedroom, which at the time was like fifty thousand in nineteen eighty five dollars. It was a huge amount of money. You know like, that Ferris just... Bueller charmed his way into getting that thing. <laughs> money was a, no obstacle for Ferris Bueller. Got a demo demo copy of the emulator two. I like that the two of you could easily solve something that I looked on Reddit for like 20 minutes and no one could, could answer the question of what keyboard that was. All right, sorry. We'll go back to Exorcist 3. Jim, your thoughts on the film? I made sure to watch this after, or to watch Hereditary, Hereditary, watch uh, Hereditary first. So I'd already seen, I've seen Exorcist 3 probably 20 some years ago. I knew it would be like a lighthearted romp compared to Hereditary. So it would be like a, you know, feel good movie. 
to <laughs> cleanse my palate, you know, after watching Hereditary. So I made sure to watch it after. So, and I was right. You know, I do remember it's very, such a crazy movie, especially the beginning. All the fun stuff really is to the beginning. Then it gets all typical kind of more horror. The whole beginning is still a baffling. They're just having fun, I guess. Or it's, he, he is, Blatty directed this too, right? The yeah. writer. So did, was, he wasn't really a director, was he? Did he do other movies? Or The Ninth Configuration. A large <laughs> number of people from the Ninth Configuration, right? Ninth Configuration, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Are in this movie too. It's kind of like, okay, guys, I know things didn't work out with this last movie. <laughs> let's, let's try it again. See if it works better. It's a fun movie. <laughs> it's such a silly... I remember watching this with the band... Rick and I, we were at some, probably after practice at some point, we watched it. It just was so crazy, like seeing the first opening, uh, Larry King at the restaurant. And then it's C. Everett Coop. Yeah, it was, I think, I don't know if you saw him first. It was like, or watching it again, it was like they're in the same restaurant. So it's like like a double hit just all of a sudden. It's like, wait, there's that's C. Everett Coop. Oh, wait. Oh, and Larry King's obvious. He has, has a line. But the C. Everett Coop is just crazy. It's, he's just, I guess friends. He must have been friends with him, or just pals, and and all the carp stuff and <laughs> what is carp, that? carp you know? stuff is the best. <laughs> it's just, my favorite. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah, the, the, the George C. Scott. Just I'm obviously he must have been just. I wonder if some of that was improvised, like the whole him talking to the guy from Saint Elsewhere when they're they're kind of having a regular conversation, and it, it's just. I wonder how much of that was scripted. Or I also love that he could go from zero to screaming at someone for no reason. Yeah. Like immediately on a dime. A lot of his character choices were like, I'm just going to scream my last line at this person. <laughs> yeah, one of my notes is just yelling with yeah. an exclamation point because at some point he infects the, uh, I can't remember the actress's name, who, who plays the nurse, the kind of angry nurse. And then yeah. she, she goes off and it's like, well, if George C. Scott can do this, I'm going to do it. You <laughs> yeah. know, and it's like, oh, now she's yelling. Everybody's going to be yelling in this movie. It's also kind of reminding me of like, have you ever any? You seen the Ninth Gate? Plansky did Plansky do Plansky? Yeah, Gate? yeah. So it's from like 1999. It's Johnny a, Depp, isn't Johnny it? Johnny Depp. Yeah. Johnny Depp. Yeah. I watched that, and I, I watched. There was a commentary track too, and he he talks about. Well, it's definitely totally satirical, just humor. You know tongue-in-cheek even more so than exorcist three but it's just like making fun of it almost and he talks in the the commentary track polanski says like it's sort of how he viewed rosemary's baby he didn't really take it seriously or it sounded like i don't know if he's saying this after the fact he, he always felt like i could never do this movie unless you know if it was serious I, I you know rosemary's baby i had to see the humor in it and stuff i didn't believe all this and and Ninth Gate is way over the top. It's like completely silly. and But I have a feeling, I don't know if he's just after the fact saying that, but at the time, he, I think he said he was, I think he was kind of surprised at how serious people took it. Rosemary's baby, but hmm. he, I, mean, I think he knew it. it was pretty creepy to people. But I don't feel like Exorcist 3 is, I don't think it's a joke, but I don't know if that stuff is intentional. It I feels think like it's stuff. very earnestly made to me, and almost like he's earnestly trying to make like a seventy. Like going back and watching it, in, I was like, "Man, this is nineteen ninety. Like it's filmed like it's a nineteen seventies movie." And I don't know if he's just trying to keep it in tone 
from the original, but it does. I agree with you, Rick. I feel like this is a very earnest. This feels like an author who got to make the movie of one of his books, and he finally gets all the control. And it's a very earnestly made movie. Yeah, I I, I agree. Like I know, like all the horror stuff, like I th- is serious. He, that you know, th- uh, demon, all that stuff is like he's definitely taking it seriously. I, I believe that. Yeah, but just the other, the wacky, just the. Like yeah. it's the, the more carp in the, in the bathtub half. type stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there's humor throughout the film. Yes, yes. Just okay. that stuff. But I, I definitely agree yeah, that he's taking this seriously. And so that's the other thing is the idea of control is like he had control for a while, but then he lost control of the film. I mean, they made mm. so all the stuff with the exorcism and Nicole Williamson um, was added on later. So the movie companies, first oh. off, it was going to be called Legion. There wasn't right. going to be any exorcism, even though Father Karras, right? Mm-hmm. That guy wasn't in it. So Brad Dorff did everything, did all of the scenes with George C. Scott as the Gemini killer. So the, the stuff with the actor from The Exorcist was added in later. Mm-hmm. The oh, wow. whole that exorcism scene was added in later. They, had, they did reshoots to add in that ending. That's why I wanted to see... I, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to see the director's cut so much that I'm going to buy the DVD of it. Apparently, that came out, but there is a version of the film that's shorter that doesn't have any of that extra stuff. Hmm. That was kind of. Put I wonder in. who is behind the choice of putting that voice modulation on Brad Dourif, because that was such a crime. He is so good, and he's so good in that performance to put like a demonic voice under like let him use his real voice his real voice is great mm-hmm. watching Brad Dourif in this movie you're like this guy should have been the joker in the 89 Batman oh, oh, he yeah, would have yeah. been an amazing joker jack nicholson fantastic joker but if you wanted like a real joker joker that's not a little campy he would have been amazing those mm. scenes with him in the cell are very joker-esque scenes he has like a well it's like a shakespeare thing almost you know the monologue he does is like 15 minutes long that towards yeah. the end you know he just goes on and on and that was pretty amazing i watched a bread Dora film last night that would be a good argument for him to be the joker this film was shot two years earlier uh, 1988 called child's play yep <laughs> and uh dora <laughs> Both in human and in doll form, you know, and as I, I think you all know, I fucking hate dolls. So it was a torturous <laughs> experience for me to watch this this film because dolls are evil and we should not trust them, nor should we make movies about them. But I watched it for this podcast and he was great in that. He was really, that was, that was a really fun and good movie. And it's interesting because Dorif says in his diatribe, he says, he says something about Little Jack Horner and then he says, child's play, Lieutenant. I didn't know if that was a reference because this Exorcist 3 was 1990 and Child's Play was 88. So didn't know if that was a reference. The other thing that you're pointing out, there was a, a real playfulness to the film. George C. Scott brings the priest, a stuffed penguin, to the hospital, which is funny because, you know, nuns are yeah. called penguins. Right. Uh, so I thought it was funny that he brought him. So there was playfulness in it, the carp story. You know, you guys talk about the earnestness of this film and what was this film? Michael, you said 70s film. I think it might actually go back further. They talk about the fly versus mm. It's a Wonderful Life and how they, he favors the fly. He thought that It's a Wonderful Life was sort of, you know, this sappy film and he, he thought the fly was one that was, he talks, I think, about the earnestness of the film and, and I think in the end of the fly, I forget who has to do it, but 
one main character has to smash the other main character with a rock. I don't know if you have you all seen the original Fly. Yeah, in the mm-hmm. remake, in the it's Gina Davis has to shoot him in the head with a shotgun. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm talking about the original Fly, which is referenced in this movie. Not they did, were not referencing the Cronenberg. No, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> well, no, actually. So what I read is that the guy, the actor who plays the priest that says his favorite movie is The Fly was actually in the Cronenberg Fly. Oh, he was. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, the well, so when was the Cronenberg Fly? Eighty-seven, eighty-six, something like that. Yeah. Eighty-eight, really? maybe. I didn't yeah, realize it was that, that old. Yeah. Well, I thought they were referring to at there's some point in the fly, the original fly, where one man comes across his friend, his friend's head on the body of a tiny fly in the rose garden. 86. And I think he's the fly saying like, save me or something. And he has to crush and kill the fly similar to the way that George C. Scott had to shoot his friend. Right. Is he, he, he kills the Brad Dorif character in the jail yeah. cell knowing that I think he was, you know, he's, he's sacrificing an innocent man. Yeah. Right. To oust the demon. Another great Brad Dorif role that I feel like has the connection to all the other roles we mentioned in this episode is his role of Luther Lee Boggs on the episode of the X-Files called Beyond the Sea. He plays a death row inmate who claims to have psychic powers and can help. He's like a Hannibal Lectory kind of guy who can help Mulder track down a serial killer, but then also claims to be able to channel Scully's recent father, father who recently died. And he's great in that. I think that was one of the first things I ever saw him in when I was growing up. He's he's really good in that. And it echoes of Exorcist 3. Not connected to Exorcist 3 at all, but I just watched a while ago, it's a John Huston film that he did with Brad Dorif as a, it's called Wise Blood. He's like a preacher. Cool. A street preacher in the 1920s, I think. It's a, a weird film. Definitely, like, seems partially improvised, and then basically al- almost all him. <laughs> he's, he's the whole film. So it's pretty amazing. Unsung, unsung hero of acting, Brad Dourif. I always wondered about him, and then also uh, Bud Court, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always I kind of lump them together, where it's just like they're just too weird to be able to sustain a full career. Because the 70s was kind of like the character actor decade. Dorf has played Chucky in everything. So I mean, right. he's, had, yeah. he's made he's a in Deadwood as well. He's great in Deadwood. He's yeah, he's yeah. had a career, but he's not been. I don't think he's gotten the accolades and the recognition that he that his talent deserves. Like I think exactly. he is brilliant. He's in uh, Blue Velvet. You yeah, know? and it's like right. why why is he in Blue Velvet? Like he's he plays Just like a bit, a minor bit character. Part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's like oh my god, he's great. But it's like ugh, you know why is he not? <laughs> Yeah. A bigger star in, in more, or yeah, bigger element in more films. It was always like he'd pop up, but it was like, oh, why, yeah, why don't I see more of him? So Gala Avery, producer of the Video Archives podcast, loves Brad Dorif and as continually saying his praises, loves his films. Have you heard about this Video Archives podcast? No. No. It's two screenwriters, old time screenwriters have been screenwriters in Hollywood for decades now, bought the video store... One of them bought the video store that they worked in together and set it up in his basement. They go down in his basement and they watch three films from VHS films or whatever they are uh, from the video archives and then uh, review the films. And I was like, this podcast sounds really similar (laughs) to Lost and Found and Rewound. So we're going to have to talk to Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino about this podcast that they've started. (laughs) 
I'm just interested in the fact that both of them, they're on speaking terms and they're... Yeah, that's interesting. They seem to be great friends. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, long-time great friends. Oh, the other great performance in Exorcist 3 is, what's his name, Scott Wilson. Yeah, another actor he's, who like should have been more He's like, yeah, and like the, the right stuff. I looked him, I was like, oh, who's that guy? I know that guy. I remember, yeah, he, he's in a, well, he's in uh, In Cold Blood. That's his yeah. big movie in whatever, 1950s, yeah. Showed up in The Walking Dead when yep. I used to watch it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's in the ninth configuration too, yeah. Uh, Passed away a few years ago. I wonder if it started in, in real life. Like, he, he has the script before George C. Scott comes in to see him. He's practicing his, his <laughs> speech, basically, to George C. Yeah. Scott. Or yeah, he, that was wild. that's a wild moment. You're like, and what I is... Wonder was he doing that on set? Like he hadn't learned his lines, and he had a little cheat sheet, and then it's like, th- oh, let's keep that in. <laughs> I think it's a red herring because I think it wants you to think that maybe he's the one doing right. all the possession or rituals because his office is also like, what doctor is allowed to have all that weird stuff in his office? <laughs> you know, yeah. The pentagram of the Playboy centerfold with like weird heads on all of her appendages. Yeah. <laughs> this should be brought to HR is all I'm saying. It's a different time. It's a different, <laughs> yeah. different time. Yeah. 1990. Yeah. He's yeah. A, he could smoke. Yeah. He's a psychiatrist. 32 years it's, ago. Let's, it's not let's, a normal doctor. It's a psychiatrist. So very strange. It's totally right. normal. Like Gabriel Byrne. Right. Exactly. Hey. So let's do a quick round of how much older, how much younger. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I hate this. I do not like this one. So using me as a baseline at 52 years old, I'll put to the three of you, I have here Ed Flanders. That's the one I looked up. Okay, so you're not in contention for this. Michael and Rick, how much older is Ed Flanders than I am at age 52 years old? Um, I have to remind me who Ed Flanders played. Was he... The priest, the priest, his, his who's buddy. addicted to lemon drops because he spent years listening to kids give confessions. Apparently, at some point, children ate lemon drops, which I find hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> and he was insane elsewhere. The very seasoned, you know, old-looking priest. I'm gonna say he's one year older than you. Okay, Rick. I'm gonna say. Hmm, let me think about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting him at a solid 53. I'm gonna say 50. He was, he was, well, I was how much older? I'm 52. I appreciate you thinking that I'm younger than, than 50, but 56. Wow. Is what Ed Flanders in the wow. film. Four years. That guy looks 73 at least. <laughs> yeah. I was going to uh, say my age as a guess. I should have said that. All right. Next is how much older is George C. Scott at the time of the film than I am today? I'm 52 years old. He looks. Old. Like, he looks like he's going to die any second. Like, he's going to walk off set and have a heart attack. <laughs> so here's a, a spoiler, is he was most likely drunk during yeah. most of the filming. So there's also the aging of, yeah, severe alcoholism. I just spent the last two weeks drunk. So I think if there's an even, we even up there. I'll say he's 58. I don't think he's 60 yet, but he's getting close. Okay, Rick, your guess? I'm going to say 60. Jim? Yeah, I think he's older. I, I, I'll i go 62. Close, 63. He's wow. 11 years older than wow. me okay. at the time of the film. Okay, all right. How much younger than me was Brad Dorif at the time mm. the film was made? Mm. Let's see, because he's in Cuckoo's Nest. So he's, I mean, he's been around for a while. 
I'm going to put him at 48, maybe 49, 48. Rick. Hmm. He might be like I'm, closer to 40, 45 or 46 now that I'm saying it. I'm going to say he was 22 in Cuckoo's Nest. So that's, and then 15 years later, that would make him 37. Mm. Jim? I'm going older. I think I'll say 42. He's 40. He's, 10, he's 12 years younger than me. He's which, four years younger than me. Yeah, crazy, isn't it? That just speaks to either how young we think we look or how <laughs> young we actually look. I'm not sure. Or what it, the difference between aging in 2022 and aging in 1990. When somebody tells me I look young, I say, it's the fat Irish face. Yeah, That's what I say. It's <laughs> like, Saying yep to myself, advantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, that's the advantage. Is If you're too thin... It starts coming back at you as you get older. That's why I'm it's avoiding like, being thin. Yeah. That's my excuse. And you haven't had a drink since you're a teen, so that helps, <laughs> that too. Helps t- yeah, probably. Don't smoke, although I secondhand smoked for a good 10 or 15 years. I enjoy a good secondhand smoke. If somebody at work will go out smoking, and my wife smokes now, so I'll go out there and just sort of enjoy some of the fumes. That's all the notes I have, gentlemen. We, we have... Uh, I think a good two minutes left on the podcast. How do we wrap up today? I mean, I, I shot my wad with my apology. It's great. I'm happy you came around on the movie, and we still got a good debate in with Avatar versus the Batman, so maybe that'll have to be the next special you guys do. <laughs> no, we're not making any more promises. We, we So I actually, we should probably take this time to say we have completed our contractual obligations <laughs> To the listening audience, we've made... Do, do you all remember any other specials that we had promised, or was this the last of the specials? I didn't even remember this promise. The Prince album special promise, the Michael comes back to do Exorcist Three versus Hereditary promise, the the Eva, the road trip was not even a promise, that was just a bonus. And then there, oh yeah, the, the intruder drum sound. I can't. I would try to find a an email where I listed all our promises, but I thought there was a promise that we were going to watch all of the Pink Panther films. With uh, <laughs> that's a good one, because William Peter Blatty. That was the thing. Is I found out that William Peter Blatty co-wrote a shot in the dark, which is the second. oh, that's cool. Oh. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh. It was like what? Well, thank you for letting me be part of this special promise. I I really appreciate being here. <laughs> Michael, is there anything you'd like to plug? We don't really do plugs on the show, but since you are a guest, we'll let you do whatever you'd like. Uh, yeah, check out my other two podcasts, Bigfoot Collectors Club, uh, every Wednesday. And then I have another show that we talk about spooky paranormal stuff. And then uh, Slate Your Name, where I talk to other actors, mostly actors in, in Hollywood about working in the business. We just finished, finished season two of that. That's a real easy listen. There's only about 25 episodes. And I'm a huge fan of Slate Your Name. I got Thank into you. it about three, four weeks ago. And kind of blew through the whole thing. So much better than WTF. It, it is delightful. Well, so if you, you if you thank like you. WTF type interview podcasts, check it out. Thanks. Any last words, Jim, before our clock times out on us? You've got uh, 30 seconds. Check out The Changeling. I forgot about that. The other George C. George C. Scott movie is around the same, whatever, 1980. Yeah, That's- better horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Lost and Found and Rewound is fully funded by Lost and Found and Rewound Foundation Funds. Lost and Found and Rewound does not use crowdfunding. 
because our listeners have better things to do with their funding. There's no need to post reviews of Lost and Found and Rewound because our listeners have more valuable things to do with their time. In all sincerity, thank you for listening to the show. We truly appreciate it. Lotus Pod.